0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're the the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk big cheese, USMACA, TPA, and more, all on this episode of The Trade Guys. Good morning, everyone.
1: This is Scott from The Trade Guys, uh, and I wanted to let you know that we have an executive education program at CSIS, and there's a four-day course called Understanding Washington that will be conducted March 20 through 23rd at CSIS in Washington, D.C. If you are a professional in government, in an NGO, or the private sector, it's a good way to deepen your knowledge of how to navigate the federal ecosystem. We have a number of experts from CSS, including Bill, who will rely on his knowledge as eight years of Undersecretary of Commerce to talk about regulation. But we also have outside experts. When we talk about the Congress, we have a, a 10-term member of Congress who addresses the class. It's energizing. It's a four-day course with a small group seminar-style responsive to your questions and issues and most people believe they walk away with a much better ability to be effective in Washington. If you're interested in the course, we'd love to have you take part in it. Just go to csas.org, click on the executive education link and you'll find more information and registration. So
0: Scott's not kidding you guys. Come and hang out with us for four days and you will learn a lot. I promise you that. Trey Guys, We got to start with, you know, as the great Emily Benson would say, start with a cheesy topic this week, which has geographic indications, right? Right. What is this all
1: about? It's not just cheese that we're going to talk about, but it's a a relatively important part of the sort of the processed food business in general. That would include wine and spirits and all sorts of Things that you do with agricultural products. Spirits? Spirits, yes. That's a very important part. Does that include bourbon? Yes. Kentucky bourbon. There are special
2: rules for spirits that are different from the rules for everything else, but it's the same issue. Uh, I hope those rules are in
0: my favor, is all I can say.
1: Well, there are rules that we can say. (laughs) Do you want cheap (laughs) bourbon
2: or don't you? Uh, Yeah,
0: I do. I mean, I don't like to drink cheap bourbon, but I want the general price of bourbon being cheap. And the price of bourbon is not cheap. Well,
1: what geographic indications do, at least in theory and sometimes in practice, is make sure the consumer who wants a product with a certain set of distinctive characteristics, that it's available to them and they can find it by name, essentially. So think of geographical indications as place names that are associated with a food product's unique quality or reputation or some other characteristics. It's most common in wines, the wine regions of, of France are well known for specific soil types, sun patterns, grape varieties. There are all kinds of things that are unique to the location. And so many of the geographic indications on wine and cheese and other processed agricultural goods uh, have a very long history. Uh, sometimes it's it's the place where it's processed. So prosciutto di Parma. The pigs don't have a green card or anything. They don't have to be munching on acorns uh, in Parma, but it's the butchers that are in Parma for that particular kind of prosciutto but they're not unique to Europe. So we have Vermont maple syrup and Idaho potatoes. So many state, state agricultural associations support their own geographic indications. The trade rules come in two parts. Bill made mention to them, there is a general prohibition against misleading the consumer. The Way to think about the general rule in trade on, on geographic indications is you can't mislead the public. It's unfair competition to label something the Swiss cheese and not have it not be from Switzerland a Swiss cheese that has Made in USA on it would not be misleading. So there's a lot of v- variation in what it means to protect the consumer, but that's the general protection for all geographic indications, where there's a place name in the product. There is a uniquely higher standard, what's called absolute protection for wine and spirits. So your Kentucky bourbon, Tennessee whiskey can only be made there and you can't use any d- derivation of that. So in the extreme example, uh, there's a variety of sparkling wine called Chandon Napa, okay? It is in Napa Valley. The, the vineyards in Napa Valley, uh, it, the trees are cut from the same grapevines that produced uh, Moët de Chandon in Europe. It's owned by the same company, but it's only champagne if it's from the Champagne region. So that product that is almost biologically identical, except for the, the superior weather conditions of Napa Valley, can't be called champagne. So that's the higher level of protection, only wines and spirits. And what the Swiss and and French cheese people found out is that national governments may or may not recognize geographic indications other than wine and spirits. And they didn't when it came to Gruyère. In some cases, it's payback because Europe refused to recognize Idaho potatoes. What about French fries? That is uh, not a geographic indication.
0: <laughs> well, you,
2: you know, they're, they're freedom fries now anyway. Our place. Yes. I, I, well, they, I, they were for
1: a brief period of time. I'm yes.
0: aware they were freedom fries for a while. Whatever they are, they're fantastic. And we eat them a lot in the United States. Yep. The British eat them a lot. The
2: French and the Belgians eat, Belgians eat them a lot also. This is a frustrating issue because I think if Europeans had their way, a much larger number of things would be restricted. You couldn't, you know, Gruyere today, Gouda tomorrow. You couldn't call it Gouda if it wasn't from the Netherlands or Switzerland or wherever. I guess it's the Netherlands. Edom is the same thing. The Italians would prefer that all Parmesan cheese be from Parma. There have been fights within the EU over feta cheese because the Greeks claim that only real feta comes from Greece. The Bulgarians. I tend among, to agree with that, by the way. You do? Oh, yeah. Because if you've eaten
0: feta in Crete,
2: you know it's their stuff. Well, the Bulgarians have a different view. Ah, you're right. And they're next door. Europe has its own fights about these things. And if you carry it to its logical extreme, it would have a big impact in the United States. You know, if you are going to say that you can't call it cheddar cheese unless it comes from that region of England, you know, you're going to force an awful lot of marketing changes in the United States. So in general, the U.S. has not been willing to recognize geographical indications to the extent that uh, the EU does. It's self-serving in a way because we don't have as many. And so it's easy for us to be uh, uh, purist about this. But this is coming up now in trade negotiations, because when the EU negotiates a trade deal with Mexico, for example, Mm -hmm. or Canada, they insist that those countries, their trading partners, honor and respect the EU geographical indications rules. That then means that they bump into the US because when the US wants to ship Gruyere to Mexico or Canada, the EU wants the Mexicans and the Canadians to reject it. And there's the makings here of multiple fights. What happened, and the reason why this is in the news today, is that, as these things always end up, do, they ended up in court. And in this case, the the Court of Appeals has actually moved along. It'll be interesting to see if if the Supremes get stuck dealing with cheese. I'm terrified at that because I I can tell you from my observation, nobody in the Supreme Court has ever known anything about economics. And their economic decisions are pretty much uniformly uninformed. So if this gets there, I'm nervous. But the appellate court ruled that Grier has been basically a common term for so long in the United States, decades, I think they referred to it, that the EU can't claim a geographical indication for it. So the American cheese makers are happy. The uh, European che- cheese makers are not happy. And it probably will continue on to be litigated.
1: Yeah. Now, there's a parallel system called trademarks. And it happens that American manufacturers have long preferred trademarks because the fights are among judges and lawyers instead of among politicians. And Europe relies on its geographic indications. They're older there, they've been around longer, but ultimately they're political fights and there's no way to settle them uh, except through, you know, sort of politicians negotiating lists. A good example of trademark, for instance, is 100% Colombian coffee. That is not a geographic indication. It is a trademark of the Coffee Federation of Colombia. And it's very well managed to the point that there are certain kinds of Coffee that while the beans are grown in Colombia that don't get that moniker decaffeinated coffee in particular, which doesn't meet which one of the things when you take out the caffeine, you take out a lot of taste caffeine's water soluble, so are a lot of things that have flavor, <laughs> and you get a kind of an ordinary taste in coffee and because decaf tastes ordinary, it doesn't taste at high enough quality to be called Colombian coffee as a trademark owner, they can decide not to put it on, which is why many
2: American manufacturers prefer trademarks. You know, you have to kind of sympathize with the Europeans. One of the articles that was talking about this pointed out that Gruyere uh, was first produced in Switzerland in 1115. You know, so like 900 years they've been making cheese. And you can understand why they feel proprietary about it. But not the U.S. which which we say hard cheese.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean, come on, cheese. It's not—it's
2: not small cheese in Europe. Let me tell you.
0: Look, last time I checked, we in the United States were the big cheese. So, like, do we win on this or what? Well, we win in the U.S. except
1: for wine and spirits. There's not an international rule. Perfect. Yeah, no, I think
2: think our Gruyere manufacturers would have problems getting their Gruyere into Switzerland. Yes, most definitely. This whole
0: line of argument really stinks, guys. Welcome to agricultural trade. All right, let's move on now to a topic that's near and dear to many Washingtonians, which is the showdown between the legislative and executive branch. This has come up frequently in terms of TPA with the Indo-Pacific economic framework and it's resurfaced in recent weeks. So what is the role of Congress
2: in trade negotiations, guys? There's a long history to this. For years, Congress did most things on trade. If you work on Hill staff, as I have, and do trade, the first thing you learn is Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, which gives Congress the authority to regulate interstate and foreign commerce. Presidents tend to point to, I believe, Article Two, Section 1, which gives the president power to, to conduct foreign relations. There's a built-in tension there on trade in particular. Nobody disputes the president has treaty power and has the authority <coughs> to negotiate treaties. But for years, up until 1934, Congress essentially regulated trade policy by passing tariff bills because, until that time, tariffs were the key instrument of trade. And every few years, there'd be a tariff bill that would literally set the duty on 10,000 different tariff lines, which is about as many as we have. That's how we got Smoot Hawley, which was the Tariff Act of 1930. That ended up with mostly ever higher tariffs, a lot of log rolling. So, if you were a congressman from Pennsylvania wanting a higher tariff on imported steel, one of the things you would do would be to go to your buddy in South Carolina and say, I'll support your higher tariff on textiles if you'll support my higher tariff on steel. So you can see over the years, things get ratcheted up. The depression changed all that and the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act of 1934 put in a new process that is basically the one we have today, which essentially created three parts. And this is an oversimplification, but because there's a lot of detail. But first part is that Congress sets the objectives. And it does so these days in in legislation called Trade Negotiating Authority or Trade Promotion Authority, depending upon which you prefer. And it lays out to the president, if you're going to negotiate an agreement, this is what we want you to negotiate. Here are your objectives. Lower tariffs, this particular market access problem solved, deal more on trademarks, IP protection. A lot of these things end up being very specific. In the last Trade Promotion Authority bill in 2015, I believe the List of objectives that were enumerated was 27 pages. So this gets quite specific. Part two is the president then goes off and negotiates the agreement. Congress does not negotiate the agreement, the executive branch does that, and they control part two. There's a long, complicated consultation process that has to be adhered to, and various entities like the International Trade Commission have to give reports. And there have to be, you know, have to meet with members of Congress and on and on and on. There are private sector advisory committees. The third part of the process is that when the negotiation is over, Congress has to approve it. And what they approve, I mean, they sort of approve the agreement, but that's the least of it. What they approve is the implementing legislation, because most of the time when you enter a trade agreement, you make promises like we'll lower the tariff on cheese or we will change the Patent protection period for pharmaceuticals from twelve years to five years. We didn't do that, but that would be, you know, that would be a commitment. Those those things like patent protection and tariffs they're in law. So if you want to change them, you have to amend the law. So the implementing bill ends up being a set of all the laws that have to be changed in order to meet the commitments that the administration agreed to in the in the treaty. And so that's the third part. Congress gets to review it, and the bargain that was struck in 1974 was to set up a special process for doing that. And the reason was that there was a trade negotiation in the late 60s when, I think it was the Johnson administration at the time, came back with a number of pieces of a a WTO trade agreement, including uh, an anti-dumping code. And the Senate refused to uh, approve the anti-dumping code. And that created kind of a problem because people said, you know, if there's an agreement coming back, you really ought to look at it all or nothing. You can't after it's been negotiated, start picking it apart and say, well, we'll take this part. We won't take that part. And so the deal that was struck in 1974 in the Trade Act of that year was that the president would submit the agreement and he would submit an implementing bill and then Congress would vote on it and block. No amendments. Also, uh, no delay. No filibuster. No playing games. It would come to the Congress. They'd have a defined number of days to look at in committee, a defined number of days on the floor. And they had to vote on it. They couldn't bottle it up. That is this procedure that we've operated under ever since. In the beginning, Congress ended up having a big say in the process because Congress said, you may submit the bill to us, but we're going to write it first. And that what that produced, and the first example of this was the Tokyo round in 1979, and I worked on that bill. And the Congress said, the administration, don't draft the implementing bill. We will draft the implementing bill. We will give it to you, and then you will give it back to us in the formal, as a formal bill to be introduced. If you do that, the odds are that we'll pass it. If you send us something else, which is his constitutional prerogative, maybe we'll pass it, maybe we won't. And in the end on that one, President Carter submitted exactly what the Congress told him to submit with five small changes. And it passed overwhelmingly. So Congress finds a way to insert itself into the process. But at the end of the day, the administration, the executive branch, is guaranteed a vote on the thing that they negotiated intact.
1: Yeah, look, in the
2: in sort of the modern era, the
1: then when the watershed event was the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement negotiated by George H.W. Bush's administration, Carly Hills, CSIS trustee was the uh, US trade representative at the time and then uh, concluded and and uh, made its way through Congress in the Clinton administration. So, it was a bipartisan effort. Trade became very partisan as a result of that particular fight. And since then, new authorization for trade negotiating authority has required a boatload of Republican votes. And what's, what's been interesting, and Bill and I have observed this over time and talked about it with our exec ed class members, is that while the, the Democratic Party has gotten more free trade and the Republican Party has become more protectionist or America first, both parties have, have members whose voting records are the opposite of their constituency. So I'm glad to see this new bill being introduced. I do think Congress does have a, an enumerated power to regulate foreign commerce and it ought to get involved. The party dynamics are such that Senator Coons has got to lift in both the Senate and the House to get his Democratic colleagues on board with advancing this. It's usually taken a preponderance of Republican support to to move it forward. So we'll see what happens. I I I think it's important. I wish we'd do it, but bill will have more on
2: the on the day to day politics, Scott is alluding to the Kuhn Soon bill, which this is an important change though, because in the past, every time Congress has passed one of these bills to set, create this authority, which all which periodically expires, that's built into the bill, which is why they have to keep on doing it. It's been general authority, and the president then can decide who he wants to negotiate with. The coons Soon bill is specific. It authorizes the president to have a negotiation with the UK, which most people would say is fairly low-hanging fruit as as trade agreements go. And it'll be interesting to see how this evolves, whether it gets any traction at all. I think that it might. I think there's a lot of interest in doing more with the UK than what the president has proposed to do so far. But it may then, if it does get traction, what it may then start is a a string of these bills that are country-specific. Mm -hmm. So the next one will be, people are already talking about it, authorizing a trade agreement with Taiwan, which has a bunch of political issues that the UK doesn't have. So it may be that because these bills have been difficult to pass in the past and because they produce a conflict in both parties, Mm -hmm. as it turns out, I think Coons and Thun concluded the safe course here was to pick one country and a popular country and go with that and hope to avoid all this. The problem they'll run into, as students of the legislative process know, is that, you know, trade bills are like trains leaving the station. And when the train is leaving the station, everybody wants to pile their baggage on board. So it won't end up just being a bill about a U.K. trade, trade agreement, be a bill about GSP, about miscellaneous tariff rules, about trade adjustment assistance. We had one one year that was held up for weeks over tariffs on socks. Maybe there will be a cheese provision because everybody comes in. These are the things don't come along very often. So everybody comes in and says, well, I have an amendment, you know, that I want to add on. And a lot of them are they're actually trade amendments. They're relevant. So getting these things through Congress ends up being much more difficult than it may seem in the beginning, because in the beginning, it says, oh, well, this is just about the U.K. That's easy. Well, it doesn't end up being just about the U.K.,
1: and this is a regular legislative process. Uh, while while, the, while the enacting the bill creates a shortcut for the for the agreement to be approved, there are no shortcuts to passing the bill in the
0: first place. Well, that's what I was going to ask you guys. What more can the administration do to gain congressional buy-in for its overall trade agenda?
2: Well, maybe they could say they wanted it. That would be a good thing. <laughs> Scott put his finger on it. Uh, they're not support. Well, they have not yet supported it. The, yeah. la- the last law expired in June of 2021, and they've expressed no interest in renewing it. And I can tell you, as, as somebody who used to lobby on this stuff, this is a replay of the Obama administration. Exactly. We went in to see the Obama folks in 2009 because the authority had expired then, too. And we said, you got to do this right away. You've got a majority in both House and Senate. You haven't irritated anybody yet. It's February. You know, go for it. And they said, no, 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 we're doing health care. We have to do use all of our health, our political capital on health care. So it took them five years to decide they wanted to do this. So fast forward to 2021, go in to talk to the Biden people and say, it's going to expire in six months. You need this. You may not know it now, but you're going to need it. And the answer was the same. No, no, no. We're doing Build Back Better. You know, we're focusing on the domestic economy. We don't have time for this. So it expired. There's been no interest since then in moving it forward. i continue to believe the day will come when they will want it and they'll regret not getting it when they had a chance. But the reality, of uh, the political reality is that it won't pass Congress unless the administration is actively pushing it. There's just not enough momentum internally in the body to get this done. The president needs to come in and say, this is important. The country needs this. Probably play the national security card like everybody does for everything else on trade uh, and get it that way. If they don't do that, you know, hearings and talk, but that's all. All right, guys. Well, Let's finally end
0: here on a topic that we all love talking about, USMCA, a.k.a. USMACA. We've discussed USMACA biotech issues on this podcast before, but now it's back in the news. So what's going on?
1: Well, let me offer a little background, which is food safety rules are really important. Now, the most important thing is that the agriculture industry worldwide has advanced to the point where we can feed Every person on the planet, There's 7.8 million billion people on the planet, and we can feed them all. That is really an impressive achievement, but it is part of the constant improvement that goes on in many industries, not to exclude agriculture. Agriculture has been subject to many efficiencies over time, including the improvements of the plants and livestock that are part of agriculture production. Ever since what was an Austrian friar in the 19th century, Gregor Mendel did some experiments with pea plants. And ever since then, we've had, we've had better and better varieties of crops. We've, had, uh, we've cultivated livestock to adapt to certain circumstances. But those are, differences are grounded in a number of cultural practices as well and often differ by nation or by economy. And there are lots of different there's lots of reasons that they're different. Whether you're trying to have a very efficient agriculture program, like people in the soybeans or corn or wheat business in the United States are looking for maximal efficiency. Whether you're trying to address consumer preference, the idea of beef cattle is sort of foreign in Europe. You're in Europe, the only reason to have cattle is to have a dairy industry. And there's not much beef on the menu, but as Robert Mitchum would say, beef is what's for dinner here in the US. And so we, we raise cattle that are specifically designed to be really great at tasting animals. So there's sometimes consumer preference, sometimes it's animal health. One of the reasons eggs are so expensive is poultry are amazingly susceptible to respiratory viruses, and they'll go through a, a hen house and kill off all the birds, which means no eggs for a while. So animal health is important. Human health is important. A Chinese company acquired Smithfield Foods from basically the food safety technology used in U.S. pork. So really detailed industry. But when it comes to food safety, there's a basic principle, which is that rules on food safety have to have a scientific basis and they have to be subject to a risk assessment. Risk assessment doesn't mean perfection, but it has a very specific definition, which is that whatever the practice is, whatever the ingredient is, there has to be reasonable certainty of no harm to the consuming public, which is a good standard, it seldom gets held, holds up, and that's the the essence of the dispute with Mexico. Mexico is making claims about genetically modified products from the United States, which have been in the food supply for thirty plus years and have had no food safety incidents. There's a reasonable certainty of no harm, and yet Mexico is is trying to apply different standards to exclude them from the market. So that's the background of it, and Bill could probably update the the, the current kerfuffles.
2: Yeah, Bill. The the immediate issue is corn. It's not everything, and the Mexicans had proposed initially a a ban on genetically modified corn, GMO corn, which is essentially all U.S. corn. There there are exceptions.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there are. And and, you know,
2: one of the things that people don't talk about here is that if you don't want to have a fight about it, uh, and you're a farmer, you can just stop using GMO corn seed uh, and go back to varieties of corn. In which case, you don't have a Mexican problem. You want to shift to Mexico. The United States has not gone down that road, partly because, I mean, it's up to the farmers, but also because, for the reason Scott said, they think there's no scientific basis to what the Mexicans are doing. What the Mexicans have lately said is that they are not going to ban the yellow corn, which is largely used for animal feed hmm. in Mexico. It doesn't go to people, but they'll maintain the ban on white corn, which does go to people. It goes into tortillas, among other things. And that's not good enough for our farmers. And so the issue is... Uh, We've uh, requested consultations, which is a formal first step. If the consultations don't produce a, a resolution, which is unlikely since they've been talking informally for months about this, then uh, I think probably what they do is they go to the, the dispute settlement process in USMCA. This will be the first non-labor-related one that, mm-hmm. uh, that they'll have.
1: other oh, the C- Canada Dairy. It's the first one with Mexico that's not... I,
2: well, it. I meant with Mexico, yeah. Although yeah. there was... Remember the, the, the dolphin one? that yeah, that, that's
1: right. That was the. That's right. That, that was, was the little, first one. Nobody the, remembers the dolphins. The little <laughs> dolphins. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of the dolphins, is it more or less likely that there will be an agreement on this versus the Ravens agreeing with Lamar Jackson? I defer to Scott on that. <laughs> well, the Ravens will be able to get to a
1: number. The problem yeah. with this dispute is nobody can get to a number on food. That's statement. right. And and so yeah. any negotiation is better with a number. Well,
0: that's a that's a really important point. If you could just apply the franchise tag in trade, everything would be fine, right?
1: That's a that's the way to solve this. So we'll we'll let us take
2: <laughs> that up with the authorizing committee, Andrew. One of the reasons why the WTO had I think so much success in the fifties, sixties, seventies on tariff negotiations was it was about numbers. And if you can make it about a number, I say a hundred, you say zero. There's probably some number in between that we can agree on. Maybe not 50, but some number. You know, when you get into more complicated things, like what are the rules going to be? You know, what are the rules for intellectual property protection? What are the competition rules? Then you're not talking about numbers and it gets a lot more complicated. And you're really talking about how people behave, which is one of the reasons why trade negotiations these days take longer and and are often less successful.
0: Well, guys, this has been a great discussion. Stay tuned on Lamar Jackson. Stay tuned on USMACA. And, uh, you know, hopefully our friends up in Wisconsin, which we haven't talked about, will continue to be able to be cheeseheads without any interruption. Let there be cheese. All right. Well, all this Greer talk is making me crave onion soup. So um, I'm going to go get some. Guys, thanks as always. We'll be back next week. Thank you. To our listeners.